We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. We're so excited to have Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes back on the show again for the fourth time to talk to, her, to us today about her latest book, Untie the Strong Woman. Dr. Estes is an internationally acclaimed poet, diplomat, union psychoanalyst, post-trauma specialist, social activist, and a cantadora, which is a keeper of the old stories of the Latina tradition. She is deputy managing editor and columnist writing on politics, spirituality, and culture at the news blog, moderatevoice.com, and she's a columnist at the National Catholic Reporter Online. Her published books include The Gift of Story, The Faithful Gardener, and Women Who Run with the Wolves, which stayed on the New York Times bestseller list 145 weeks. She created a 15-volume collection of original best-selling audio works and a 12-part live performance series entitled Theater of the Imagination, broadcast on both Pacifica and NPR. Dr. Estes has been providing live events on SoundsTrue.com for the past year, entitled The Dangerous Old Woman, with various topics on The Dangerous Old Woman. Her latest book, Untie the Strong Woman, as I said, is our to- topic of discussion today, and we are so excited to have you back again, Dr. Estes. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Andrea. Number four? Yeah? Number four. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just keep so going good. on. I appreciate <laughs> so much that you always ask such interesting questions for your listeners. Oh, thank you. I really enjoy getting to the depths of the issues because I think that's really what our listeners are looking for. So we'll be talking about some of that depth today. And where I want to start, if you will, is, um, you know, there's there's comedic, comedic value to this whole in th- thing about the masculine and the feminine. And uh, so many times we when we talk about the feminine archetype, it's almost with the we're casting aspersions on the masculine archetype. So I want to, if you will, to give us a clear definition of the healthy masculine archetype and the healthy feminine archetype. You know, uh, I would say it a different way slightly. Um, right. And that's a good question because it's in the culture, isn't it, to divide things always. You know, in nomenclature, trying to understand it by naming it. Um, but the the larger would be source without source. Source without source, an irrepresentable archetype. And then 
because our little minds, at least mine is little pea brain, we have to break it down into things that we recognize and try to describe so we can understand more that huge source without source. And two ways of doing that, and there are many ways, um, two ways are saying the masculine and the feminine need one another, that they are parts of the whole, of the source without source, and that in unity with one another, they actually merge and lose their identities to some extent and become a great source of power, knowledge, sensitivity, creativity, um, and so on. So, But in the culture, uh, the popular culture, or what I call the over-culture, meaning the people who make up <laughs> ideas that we're all supposed to believe and think and rule our lives by, um, at least during the first half of our lives, the masculine and feminine are often divided into traits. And in our culture, we have all lived long enough now, uh, I'm in my seventh decade, to see that it used to be divided by work, by what people did. Women had babies, men went to work, men earned money, women took care of the household. And then, of course, what happened was that um, in psychology, there was an idea that males were warriors, uh, that women were handmaidens uh, or goddesses or any number of ways of dividing things. And and uh, somewhere, you know, along the line, there were many women who stood up and said, you know, I, I'm also a warrior. That's not just something relegated to someone by virtue of their gender. And men also spoke, um, particularly in the mid-90s, I think, quite vociferously, and said, wait a minute, you know, we have a mothering function, too. We'll have many things, and not necessarily all the same things. So there was this uh, movement in the psyche, collective consciousness, in some toward reunifying source without source, where there are not quite so many divisions between men and women that are taken so literally, but rather that it's more like a, a feast, a table that is groaning with attributes, beautiful, wonderful attributes most often. And you have your choice. You're born with a calling. You're born with gifts. And you get to choose for your own development through your soul, hopefully, not only through your ego, but through your soul, which of those you will develop. And so um, rather than saying exactly feminine or masculine, although there are differences for sure, <laughs> there truly are uh, in actual human beings, the point would be to see what has been separated out a little bit like um, a yolk from the egg and set aside this one from that rather than just being the egg the entire egg that actually, if you keep it intact, it will bring forth a new little life, and that little life will grow and develop. So um, the duality, as some people call it, of masculine and feminine is actually, I think, a learning tool where we divide and label things in order to differentiate ourselves. But at some point, uh, it becomes important to see that it's not particular to gender, that it's particular to an enormous set of traits that are open to all of us. 
Okay, that's very clear. I think in this age where we're where we see transgenderism and uh, gay and lesbian issues coming forth, and the whole idea of gender changing, it helps us to kind of get a bigger view of what genderism is, but also of what uh, wholeness is. Would you it's agree a, with that? A, it truly is a feasting table. There, there, some people, you know, as you know, when you look at a table where a feast is laid out. Some things draw you much more so than others. Uh, to, to change the metaphor to just colors, well, if you look at a spectrum of colors, you know, like a paint um, swirl chart, you know, that you fan it and you see all the many, many, many thousands of colors, we're attracted. Just some nature within us attracted much more to, say, the acre violets or the cobalt blues than we are to the viridians or to... But other people are attracted to the warmer end of the spectrum. And we don't have an accounting for all of that psychologically. We just see that it is so that different people feel as though, think as though they have a destiny and they know what it is within themselves. And it is only the overculture that makes up rules and regulations. And they are made up, incidentally. There is nothing that I know of that's written straight up out of the ground in stone. Um, they are attracted to various and sundry different things in order to fulfill their destinies. And um, I think that insofar as no harm unto others and to help and to heal this world, that there is no problem with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to take a break in a few minutes, but I wanted to get started on this. You told a wonderful story in the book about your uncle Tovar, and I think I'm saying that name right, Tovar, yes, uh, whose middle name was Mary. Yeah. Well, meant Mary. And uh, you talked about how that helps us understand what you've just said a little bit more. Can you say more about that? Just yes. Uh, one of uh, my uncles had a confrontation the, the, during World War II. Uh, first the Nazis, then the Red Army under Joe Stalin came to the little farm villages and tried to conscript all the men, all the young boys and all the young men to go away and fight for them, for whatever side they were on. And um, many of the men tried to run away into the forest, and many did, and my uncle was one of them who tried to run away. And so he was hiding. He had a horse blanket thrown over his shoulders in the middle of the winter. And he was hiding in the woods. And uh, two Nazi men came along on their motorcycles. And they were um, wanted to urinate at the side of the road. Um, and as they did, they looked straight at my uncle, who had a red and white striped horse blanket on his back. And one remarked to the others, look at those beautiful roses. And the other one said, we don't have time for roses. And they got done with their business and they rode off. And it was the middle of December. And so my uncle took the name Moriska from that day forward. That means Mary, Holy Mary, because he felt Our Lady protected him because she's the woman of the roses. She's Our Lady of the roses, of the red, red roses. And so he wore his name proudly and often in confirmation names that confirmation is uh, in the Catholic religion what we do at age 12 when we come into the majority of our wits and our ability to bear children and our ability to hopefully see farther than we ever have before and to bring our witness to the world. We take two secret names. 
And those names are meant to bless our lives forever. Right. And in our culture, many people well, Let me stop Maria. you right there. I'm gonna, we're going to go back to those two names right after the break. I'm sorry to have to cut you off, but we're going to take a break for these messages, and we'll be back in just a moment. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness Research is transforming healthcare. Are you tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back with Authentic Living, talking today to Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes about her latest book, Untie the Strong Woman. Beautiful book. I highly recommend it. And uh, we were talking just before the break, and again, I apologize for having to cut you off there, but talking just before the break about how we each get two names and each has its own blessing. Can you say some more about that? Well, the idea is that you would take a name that has meaning to it because people know the meanings of names like they know the meaning of the name David, for instance, or David, they know them, which is beloved, the one who is beloved of the soul. They know the meaning of Michael or Michael. The meaning is uh, he who is like God, with a question mark actually at the end of it. So they know the names of um, Anna and Elena and so on, and what they mean at their root. And so they take them as the courage bones you know, of their future life, that these are, names are going to not only guard them, they will grow into them, hopefully, that the names are bigger than we are when we take them, but also that they often uh, belong to the sainted people, the holy people, that someone has walked this earth before us, and maybe many people by that name who have strived really hard to stay connected to source without source while they go about in all the challenges of life, some of which are 
terrible twists of fate, and some of which, of course, are beautiful and joyous because we live on a planet that has a bright yellow sun and blue water and a dark cobalt sky at night, and it is a beautiful silver moon, and we are lucky to be in such beauty, too. Mm-hmm. So taking the middle name of Muruska, which is, means Mary, will mean that she now will be in this special relationship uh, with him that is acknowledged by the miracle that happened at the side of the road where he was hiding, where people looked directly at him and saw roses instead of seeing him. Beautiful. Beautiful. So, yeah, and I like the idea that it was a middle name, too, because it sort of uh, breached the divide between his given name and his surname. That's right. Well, in amongst the many of the Latinos, we have many, many Jose Marias, uh, Juan Maria, uh, Geraldo Maria, and Jorge Maria. Well, it is not considered, you know, like a boy named Sue. Yeah. <laughs> it's not considered yeah. quite that way, although um, I actually like that song by uh, Johnny Cash. But um, it, it's considered like a special protective armor that you go out into the world with. And often people don't know, other people don't know the, your whatever your holy names are that you've taken unto yourself. Only only the very close family knows, usually. Mm, it's beautiful. So, okay, you talk a lot in the book about the Great Mother, and you've talked also on the show about Source Without Source. Are those synonymous terms? I would say that uh, our understanding of one of the representations of the Source Without Source, remember, that's irrepresentable. An archetype is irrepresentable. It is so enormous. It is so vast. It is so containing of many infinite universes that you can't, as a human anyway, you can't grasp it. So um, Holy Mother, Blessed Mother, is definitely a force that we all perceive and feel if we have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the senses to sense. And this is what we call her by thousands and thousands of names, and we imagine her in many, many, many ways. And she is directly from the source without source. Okay. So it's a help for us to sort of bridge that gap between the unnameable and what, is, what we name. That's, well, it's right. We, we have a propensity for naming things because we don't... We <laughs> there are markers. Otherwise, we're constantly on dead reckoning and we don't know where we are. So it, it appears, anyway, that I used to say about my mother that... You know, she had um, some difficulties in life in, in terms of her mental states. And I used to say she'd go through the entire zodiac, depending on what day it was. <laughs> it mm-hmm. would be uh, this way this day and that way this other day. Except that this idea of certain archetypal aspects or representations appealing to us, again, goes back to what I was saying earlier, that many of us are called to see, feel, know, walk with certain representations that mean everything to us. And for many, many of us, Holy Mother means that for us. She is, she is, um, it's, it's unthinkable to walk without her. Okay, are you there, Dr. Oh, Rice? Yeah. I'm right here. 
Okay. It sounded like you went away there for a minute. No, I'm right here. I, I think okay. that um, the, that little prayer space right there <laughs> okay. is for a thoughtfulness. See, the thing is that the representations that come from source without source are not um, taken up by everyone. But one of the interesting aspects about Holy Mother in our culture of our time, but also ancient culture and mid-culture and culture 500 years ago during the conquest, for instance, is that her representation is so powerful that the minute someone decides to invade or to go to war, she's one of the very first of all the images they attempt to destroy. For instance, in Stalin's Soviet Union uh, after World War II, uh, forbid the veneration of Holy Mother, forbid it utterly, forbid the rosary, forbid images and icons of her to be hung, turned all of her churches throughout all of Eastern Europe and Russia into office buildings, into storage places, into literally places for basura, for trash, and attempted to demother the entire part of that world and then called themselves Mother Russia. Mm. Now, there is Mother Russia. Uh, Holy Mother is over Mother Russia for certain, as she is over all things, in sense of compassion flows through her into humans and out of them again toward one another, mercy. All of the matters that we can understand, we can understand through her huge beneficence, through her huge mercy toward others, that she would lean down to help the poorest of the poor, the least of the least, but also the richest of the rich and the highest of the high. That she doesn't differentiate by economics, she doesn't differentiate by social class. She'll help whoever has need. This is what all of her stories are about. So when there's a conquest, as there was in all of Mexico, Central America, and South America, the first thing the conquistadores did was to destroy the temples to Holy Mother, of which they were rampant, they were everywhere, because Holy Mother is held as a concept that comes into people whether they're told about her by someone else or not. If they are not told about her, they will dream about her at night. She will come to them in one way or another. And so that's why Our Lady of Guadalupe is so precious to so many of us because she's called La Conquista. She came at a time of huge treachery, terrorism, murder, death. The Inquisition from Spain was imported into Mexico in 1519 when the conquistadores came and then all the bishops came and all the grandees came and all the people came and they enslaved all of the Indian tribal people and put them to work tearing down and destroying their own temples and taking the rubble and building churches from them as the foundation of those churches using the slave labor of the Indians. And in the midst of all that, of killing people, family members, right before the family's eyes, left and right, wherever they went, opening up a huge terrorism amongst the Mexicano people. Little Don Diego, a little Indian, a Nahua Indian, is going past the dirt hill at Tepeyac, where the great, great temple of Tonantzin has stood since forever, who is the great mother of all of the Nahua people. The Nahua people are called Aztecs by the Spaniards. And he sees her standing there, and she says, Build for me. 
a church here. Go tell the bishop. And he's terrified. Terrified to talk to the bishop. Terrified that he sees this beautiful lady on the hill where the destroyed temple stands. Utterly terrified. And yet, she says to him, Have you forgotten? I am your mother. You are under my protection. And so, she has come to known as the mother of the conquered, the one who will appear, who will help, who will tell, who will show. And when she appears to him, she's surrounded by beautiful flowers and glowing gemstones that glow up out of the ground. And she is loving and merciful and protective of him. Beautiful, beautiful. That's a really powerful story, and I think it's really so true as it relates to something you call in the book the path of the broken heart. Um, that's a such a special journey, so sacred, and yet none of us want to take it. Well, isn't that the truth? Yeah. I, I guess it takes us, doesn't it? It's not um, something that we ever would want to have. But um, most all of us at one time in life, and sometimes more than once in walk that and hopefully you know your heart the doors are blown open and stay open they'll just hang there by their hinges and you're open-hearted for life then well that's the you know the diamond at the middle of the ruin is that those doors of the heart through hardship and difficulty and betrayal and horror actually uh, no longer can be closed to anything that is good and decent ever I'll never guess ever again what is good and decent. You would even bend to try to give mercy to those who have no mercy. Yeah, and that's, that comes down to what how we develop compassion. Isn't that true? That when we when our hearts, I think it was Ilyana Van Zant who said that uh, uh, we get broken open, and you just referred to that as well. That the idea is we we our hearts get broken open, and we can stay open after that, and it builds compassion. All right, well, we're going to be back right after the break, so stay tuned for more from Dr. Pinkola Estes. Awakened Media for a Transforming World, Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness Research is transforming healthcare. 
Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And the Authentic Living Show is brought to you by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, dedicated to expanding science beyond conventional paradigms. Founded by Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, IONS is a nonprofit research, education, and membership organization whose mission is supporting individual and collective transformation through consciousness research, educational outreach, and engaging in a global learning community in the realization of human potential. You can join that learning community at www.noetic.org. And today we're talking to Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes about her wonderful book, Untie the Strong Woman. And I wish we had hours and hours to talk about everything in this book, uh, but instead I would encourage you to go get it because it is beautifully written and it has so it is so moving to just walk through the pages of this book and sort of open up as you read it. Um, so I want to talk about something I think is real important. We've talked about bre- uh, breaking open and compassion. I want to talk about the dark night of the soul. One of the things you said in your book was that the exact living center, center of the dark night of the soul is that one decides for the soul no matter what. Can you tell us what that is like to choose for the soul no matter what? Well, I would say this, that uh, most of us are raised to think that, you know, performance in the outer world is everything, uh, hopefully with a tether to our soul. But, you know, it, it gets overwritten a bit uh, in adolescence often and uh, certainly in young adulthood and sometimes even all the way up into middle age where the, the, the ego becomes the lead dog, so to speak, and it's saying, well, I going to do this and I want that and have to get over here and be this and be this other thing. And, you know, one day there is a crash and burn. Uh, the crash and burn can be as light as, is this all there is? Is this all there is? Really? This is it? Which causes the soul to suddenly start glowing. Um, say, no, there's more. There's more, and I have it right here. If you'll come here and be with me. And um, it can be, of course, also from a huge and sudden betrayal, sudden loss of a job, loss of a mate, loss of a child, a come as a result of a terrible, terrible pain to the heart, a blow to a person's life. 
And the ego is not capable of gathering up and putting the person back together again. Only the soul and spirit, they have the power. And so people begin to turn in some way more and more toward what soul dictates, what soul knows, what soul thinks and wants, rather than with the little teeny tiny ego, which is like a, you know, it's like a little dot in the universe compared to a universe in and of itself, like the soul. So the ego, though, is always uh, pretending that it's much larger than it actually is. And it's, of course, filled with lots of appetites. The soul only has one appetite. Oh, that's love. It's love. It's very hard to stay in love in the soul because the ego is often easily irritated and aggravated and has old scores to settle and who knows what, I mean, you know, how it all goes. But eventually, eventually, we all learn. We do. Most all of us, I should say. We, we learn that the contentment is what we're seeking. Harmony is what we're seeking. Loving what we can and blessing down hard on what we cannot love and going forward comes from the soul. Now, the ego always wants to make everything fair and make everything work out all right. And so, you know, good. Which, of course, you know, I have to say after a time, good luck with that. How's that working out for you? Because it doesn't. Not in this world. This world is not planet perfect. It's a learning planet. So here we are learning. Uh, the more the soul leads, the more content we often are, the more easily we're able to bless down on people and situations and let go and move forward to love, you know, but with limits would be the soul's way of doing things, and limits in terms of preserving our physical self so we continue to live. And this is a part of spiritual maturation. And uh, in a culture like ours, uh, in Western culture, as you know, is imported almost everywhere now. And it's um, sometimes over-ambition to perform something rather than be a being. Um, it's an issue across the world about returning to center again, about being at that absolute center. Holy Mother... I think, demonstrates it over and over and over again in all of her stories, many of which are still held by some of the great religions of the world, by the Coptic Christians, by the Muslims, by the, by the Catholics, by the Evangelicals. Um, there are many, many areas, including little blips in Buddhism as well, of Holy Mother, certainly as one of the Taras, and certainly in the Asian religions of Kuan Yin is this completely compassionate, merciful mother is held there and she personifies, personifies the soul. In other words, if a person wanted to know how to move from ego only assessing everything and condemning everything and complaining about everything and having ambitions about everything as, as we all do somewhere in life, uh, they would study some of her stories that still exist and the stories of Demeter and Persephone. There are lots and lots of stories. They're fragmentary because of all the invasions and wars where her stories, her people, her poets, her storytellers, her priests, her holy people were destroyed, literally murdered over and over and over 
and over again. But as you see, she's indestructible. She comes back to us over and over again through other people. They dream her. They see her. She appears to them. She speaks to them. They sense her. And they, she appears through the, another person to them who acts uncharacteristically merciful in a moment. And you know Holy Mother has touched them because they're not ordinarily that way. And so if we keep our eyes open and our inner hearing open and our hearts open, then we will see her everywhere, everywhere. And hopefully we will be able to imitate her. Imitatio Maria, that's how it's called in uh, the way that I was brought up, the imitation of Holy Mother. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, so when we're choosing for the soul or we're choosing for Holy Mother, what we're choosing is to be in that centered place. It's a hard place to maintain unless you have a daily practice. And so, you know, different people have different practices. And, you know, what I've learned over the years is that whatever a person's practice is daily, if it's yoga, if it's singing, if it's praying, if it's walking, if it's dreaming, if it's writing, if it's artwork, if it, whatever it is, that is the practice that centers the person at the very heart of the Immaculate Heart of Holy Mother. That practice, that sensation of peacefulness, that sensation of return to center is Holy Mother personified. Now you can call it lots of different things and people can call it whatever they like, but many, many of us understand this as the Immaculate Heart of Holy Mother where there is complete peace, power, strength, rest. Beautiful. Okay. One of the things you said in the book, and I think it was in one of the poems of the book, was, and I'm going to quote this, it's, Without you, my sister, my mother, my child, I would never have known that pain, joy, and strength are one. I, th- I think that's so beautifully said and so rich, and I think it's something that we just can't even imagine. We In our in the ego world, we uh, the realm of the ego, we just can't even imagine that those three things are possibly, could possibly be one. So can you talk just a minute about that? I would. I, I, I will tell you a, a revelation that I've had. Um, um, sometimes I feel like I write my own book of revelation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd love it. I bet, although the one that is already written is highly poetic, my goodness. Yes, it is. Glorious yes, it is. images in it. Um, the revelation that I had was that the idea of fight and flight is not accurate. That when we're pressed with difficulty, uh, in the moment, flight or fight is definitely true. Like if uh, you're suddenly confronted by a knife-wielding kangaroo, you <laughs> immediately either run away or draw your own knife and fight for your life, right? But when this immediate situation is no longer imperiling you absolutely immediately, there are a couple other things that come into play, and it's fight or flight, feast or learning. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Feast or feed would be the word. Many people, when they're frightened, upset, challenged, they eat They eat food, they drink, they put substances in their body in order to help to calm themselves. This is an instinctual reaction. 
And it's not by accident that many of the holiest endeavors of ceremony and ritual and rites have to do with feeding. They have to do with eating, calming, centering, coming back to center. Now, I'm not sure going out and eating five chocolate sundaes is what I'm talking about. But you can see the impulse in people sometimes gets misdirected into eating things that are not particularly good for you, but actually calm you down because they're high in fat or carbohydrates, for instance, which we know has a calming effect on the body and therefore on the sense of self. Uh, And yet, to create a feast of some sort that is ritual for strength would be the idea, but it gets diverted sometimes into just eating to calm oneself without consciousness. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, just we go unconscious to eat sometimes. That's right. That's right. So it, it's almost like the aftermath of fight or flight is to feed, you know, is... But the other is learn. In other words, something comes to us out of the blue often. Um, because I'm so far out into the world sometimes, even though I like to stay in my cave as much as possible so I can do my work... <laughs> When I'm out in the world, you know, all kinds of unusual things happen because, you know, there's just lots of people in the world and lots of elements come together in one place. And you could never quite predict always what, you know, is going to happen. But whatever it is that occurs, whether it be good or great or not so hot, there's a learning at the middle of it. There's a learning at the middle of joy. There's a learning at the middle of beauty. There's a learning at the middle of torment. There's a learning at the middle of all things. And that, too, is part of peril and challenge in this world, is that something is meant to be learned from it. And I'm very clear that fight and flight are followed by feast and learning, that those two things are important ways that we bring down to earth what has happened to us. We iron it out, straighten it out as much as possible. We learn from it and do whatever we need in terms of justice, but also in terms of mercy. And then we move onward. And that's the way of Holy Mother. That is her way of moving in the world, always has been. Holy Mother, as the, the stories, for instance, in first century Judaism, first century are of a fierce woman, not a quiet, silent woman. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to come back and talk about that quiet, silent woman in just a few minutes. We'll be back with more with our final segment with Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness Research is transforming healthcare. 
The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with Great Spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back with our final segment with Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, and we're talking today about her beautiful book, Untie the Strong Woman, in which she explains not only how we lost touch with uh, the strong woman, the great, the great mother, but also how we can regain it, and uh, very beautifully written. So I really encourage you to buy the book and read it cover to cover, read it slow, take it in. It's beautiful. So um, I wanted to talk about one of the concepts that you presented that was given to you by your grandmother that I really fell in love with when I read it. You called it unright. She called it unrightening, unrottening the ripe, and I really love that idea because I think it says so much about the progress of life towards soul. Can you tell us what she meant by that? Well, it's, you know, first of all, you know, I grew up in a farm area in the rural outback of the Upper Midwest. Um, so if you allowed a tree not to be pruned properly, then when it received all of its fruit, say an apple tree or a pear tree or a peach tree, its limbs would literally break from the weight of the fruit. So there was a concept about the soulfulness of caring for trees, fruit trees, and for caring for one's own soul that you have to prune back the ego, for instance, to make it so that when you flower and then eventually your fruit comes from the flowers, that you would not bend down so low, so burdened with all the ego's ideas and ambitions, that the fruit would lie on the ground and literally rot there. Or it would tear the limb right off the tree because of the weight. And so... The idea was that you would trim back, that you would create it so that it's not taking the limbs out to take the limbs out. It's to create sunlight going into the center of the tree. So the tree feels the sunlight and strengthens its limbs, strengthens its flowers, and makes its fruit sweet. Therefore, this idea of taking what is ripe before it is ruined and making it into something else also so that 
when, you know, we'll have more fruit trees than you could ever, I mean, <laughs> so jam and jelly, you can only eat so much, no matter how large your family is, <laughs> from the pears and the peaches and so forth. And uh, so, but because they were, um, the, the fruit would go to waste, you would pick it and you would make sure that you picked it at its prime, and even if one little part maybe was a little overdue, you know, it was a little bit too ripe now, and it was getting a little soft, you would take that part out, and you would preserve all the rest, and you would go through the whole system, you know, of the great big canning and the cooking and the steaming in the kitchen in the summertime and practically dying from the heat and yet coming out with all these glistening Mason jars filled with brilliant gold and brilliant red plums and brilliant beautiful fruit to be put away for the winter and given to other people. This whole idea of taking care of the fruits is a strong idea spiritually that you would do the same, that you would let nothing go to waste. Even little tiny parts that might be taken out of a plum because it maybe laid on the ground for a little bit. Um, even those, they would be made down into mash and put back into the compost pile so that everything was always used to bring life again, always life and more life. And imagining yourself as a beautiful tree, tree arbor de la vida, tree of life, that flowers over and over again. You don't have just one chance at it. Holy Mother flowers over and over, every day, every night, with mercy, beauty, protection, care, love, intervention, and ideas, inspiriting other people, not just once, over and over and over again, and to not let the fruits of the Spirit lie on the ground and go to waste, but to pick them so they don't become rotten, to put them to use somewhere, to even store them away in a way that is held beautifully and soulfully rather than ego, you know, of course, always running about in a flurry, you know, wanting to eat everything up and use everything up and if not feeling badly about it. So everything in its own time, everything in its own time. Holy Mother had the experience in some of her stories of losing her child, whether it was Persephone losing uh, the future of her progeny by being carried off by Hades, or whether it was Demeter losing Persephone to Hades, or whether it was our Holy Mother Mary losing her son, her Jesu Cristo, her child of love. These stories of the mother losing the child and seeking the child no matter what, protecting the child no matter what, Mary, Maria, Miriam, in her old stories of several thousand years old, she is not pregnant um, by a man, it's said, but she is pregnant without being married in a culture, in the culture of that time, in the Jewish culture, which was considered stonable, was considered that it would be all right to murder a woman like that. And what did she do? She stood up and she said, no, no, I don't care the God of love. All this tempest of rebuke and saying, you can do this only and you can't do that, and this person should be put to death, and that person's not acting right. She said, no, I'm bringing the God of love. I'm bringing the God of mercy. That's who I'm pregnant with. 
and you're not going to hurt me or harm me. I'm going to bring this child. And she goes. She goes far off with then her protector, Joseph, Yosef. And they go and they go. And she gives birth in the middle of nowhere. Isn't that the truth? For mm-hmm. all of us, don't we give birth often unaccompanied, don't we? Yeah. In the most meager of circumstances, turned away from many, many places. And we give birth to the God of love, to that love, that source without source in our daily ways of being. And we learn to strive more and more to do that. And then what does she do? And I'd like to end with this as a little prayer that's in the book. What does she do? In the middle of the night, she goes with the child at her breast. She's just given birth to, and she's still bleeding from her giving birth. And she crosses without papers into Egypt in order to protect her child because a king has ordered the slaughter of all the boy babies under one year of age. And so she flees with the child of love at her breast all the way across cold and rocky terrain with only one idea in mind, and that is to keep the child of love alive. And that is the point of Holy Mother, is to keep love alive. And so here we are. Let her, let us, let all of us be found by her. Let us, let her be freed to be brought home to a place of love for one another. On all sides of every kind of border, let us all know how and when to stay to teach others. Let us all learn how to take down fences and how to become ourselves wide open gates just like her. We are all in some way los inmigrantes. We are all in some way immigrants crossing borders to true home with proper papers issued only by the soul. Amen, amen, amen. So may it be for you, Andrea. So may it be for me. So may it be for all of our listeners. Amen and a little woman. Amen and a little woman. Thank you so much, Dr. Estes, for being here today. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you. And next week we're going to be talking about what it means to get into the flow of the I am, the existing one. Don't miss it. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.